Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. Today with us are professors Daniel Promislow and Matt Kaberlein, co-directors of the Dog Aging Project at the University of Washington in Seattle. Welcome. Let's get right into it. What is the Dog Aging Project and what the ultimate goals are of it? I'll start. This is Daniel here. So it started out in 2007 when Elaine Ostrander's group published a paper in Science on the genetics of size in dogs and the single greatest contributing gene to variation in size among breeds turned out to be IGF-1, which we know is associated with aging. And we also know that large breed dogs are much shorter lived than small dogs. And so that got us wondering whether IGF-1 might have something to do with aging in dogs. I was at the University of Georgia at the time and reached out to the veterinary school who put me in touch with Kate Creevy. She is now the chief veterinary officer for the Dog Aging Project. She's at Texas A&M. So Katie and I started talking about dogs and aging. And I moved to the University of Washington in 2013. And leading up to that, started conversations with Matt, who had a ton of awesome ideas about dogs and aging. And the three of us led the writing of a grant to fund the Dog Aging Project. And the rest is history. The overall goals of the Dog Aging Project are to understand how genes, environment, and lifestyle shape healthy aging in dogs and the mechanisms by which they do so, and to understand, to determine if we can intervene, and this is really where Matt has taken the lead, if we can intervene and improve healthy aging in dogs. It has been said that dogs are perhaps the best model for human aging. We're obviously genetically similar to them, but there are these lifestyle and environment aspects because they live in homes and arguably eat food that's more similar to ours than, say, laboratory animals. Could you comment on the notion that dogs are a very good model for human aging? There are several reasons why dogs are a particularly compelling model for human aging. You alluded to the environmental component, and that's really something that it's impossible to capture in laboratory animals. In fact, in laboratory animals, we do our best to really control environmental variation. Whereas dogs experience pretty much every aspect of the human environment. You've mentioned diet. Diet is maybe the one area where they don't completely share the human environment. But in almost every other way they do, you think about water quality, air quality, different factors that, that influence the home environment. All of those are things that dogs and humans share. And of course, dogs have the advantage from the perspective of trying to understand aging that they age about seven to 10 times more rapidly than people do. So that means that, that we can actually carry out longitudinal studies to understand the most important genetic and environmental risk factors in a few years, whereas in people, it would take a few decades. And then from the perspective of interventions, we can actually, in a clinical trial setting, test whether or not interventions that we think have the potential to modulate the biological aging process actually do impact lifespan and health span, again, in a reasonable time frame. Dogs also get the same diseases that we do. And veterinary medicine has the same kinds of specialties that you see in human medicine, cardiology, ophthalmology, oncology. The one specialty that is notably absent from veterinary medicine is geriatrics. Uh, so there's a great opportunity here to really learn about normative aging in dogs. Now, this is funded through the National Institutes of Health. And some of our listeners might not be so familiar with the NIH, which is the major government funder of uh, medical research. Can you let us know a little bit about what your relationship is with the National Institutes of Health and whether it was challenging for you to get the NIH to get on board with such an ambitious project focused on dogs? The National Institutes of Health include 
many different institutes, one of which is the National Institute on Aging, and that's the particular one that we work closely with. They fund research not just in humans, but in all kinds of organisms. So a lot of what we know about human health and disease, we've learned from really simple organisms like yeast and nematode worms and fruit flies. So they're enthusiastic about funding any sorts of models that can teach us about health and disease. The relationship that we have with the National Institute on Aging, NIA, goes back right to the beginning when Kate Creevy and I wrote our first paper Ron Kohansky, who is now the division director for the Division of Aging Biology at NIA, reached out and said, this is really cool. You ought to think about working with us to try and fund some efforts to develop the dog as a model to study aging. So right from that time, and this was around 2011, so 10 years ago, we've worked really closely with them to develop the kind of project that they would feel good about. They're paying our bills. So we certainly want them to feel good about what we're doing. And we work very closely with them to make sure that we're doing the best possible science and we're able to answer the kinds of questions that they are interested in. And I think this is especially relevant, not only for the the epidemiological work that we do, which is trying to understand what happens to dogs as they age just normally, but also the trial that Matt is running. One of the interesting things about this project, or two interrelated interesting things, is the scale of the project in terms of how many dogs are enrolled and the fact that the dogs are not living in laboratories, but are actually living in their homes with their owners and being seen by their attending vets. That is sort of evocative of this term citizen scientist. Again, some of our listeners may not be familiar with this term citizen scientist or the scale of the dog aging project. So perhaps you could explicate that a little bit. That's one of the really unique and fun aspects of the dog aging project is that the owners are involved in collecting the data. In fact, the first thing that owners do to become part of the dog aging project pack is to provide extensive survey information on the health history and the environment that their dog has experienced. And so that participation in collecting data and providing data is really what makes this a citizen science, or we actually have started using the term community science project. Our owners are really part of the community of the dog aging project. So I think Within the field of aging research, the Dog Aging Project is definitely the largest community science project, and it's one of the larger community science projects in the world. So we now have upwards of 32,000 owners and dogs in the Dog Aging Project pack who are contributing to the longitudinal study of aging, which will, we believe, help us to really understand the most important genetic and environmental components of healthy aging in dogs. In fact... We are still enrolling dogs for your listeners who are interested in enrolling their dog. We welcome more dogs to the Dog Aging Project pack. All they need to do is go to dogagingproject.org and nominate their dog. We welcome dogs of all sizes, all ages, male, female, purebred, mixed breed. So we're, we're still enrolling. Do you have an upper limit where it's going to be closed or? There is no upper limit. We hope to continue this project for many generations of dogs. Wonderful. So Matt had mentioned the longitudinal study, and I read on your website that you're looking at, I believe, heart function and blood chemistry. What other things are you sort of following over time longitudinally in the dogs to ascertain their health status? We can think of two different kinds of studies that we're doing. One is the observational study, and I'll just focus on that one for now, and we can talk about the intervention study that Matt's doing later. There are different levels with which we follow dogs. So the first most important level is just to collect the information about health, disease, activity, diet from all the dogs. That's done through surveys, and all participants will be asked to contribute survey updates every year. So we follow the dogs throughout the course of their lives and learn about 
their own life experiences and the kinds of diseases that they might encounter. For some dogs, about 10,000 altogether, we're also collecting whole genome sequencing with cheek swabs that we sequence. And then a smaller group of about 1,000 dogs will be brought by their owners to their veterinarian. We send them a kit to take along to the vet that allows the veterinarian to collect blood samples, fecal samples, hair, urine. Those samples are shipped to us. This will allow us for these sets of dogs every year to obtain basic clinical chemistry, clinical pathology that you would get if you brought your dog to the veterinarian. CBC chem, so the complete blood count and blood chemistry and your analysis. And then our scientists will also analyze what we call the systems biology components, the epigenome, the microbiome, the metabolome. We're also looking at a panel of inflammatory markers, measuring frailty. So these are the sorts of things that we will track throughout the course of the life of these dogs. The hope is that these molecular biology measures that we collect will allow us to predict what might happen in the future for dogs and to improve diagnosis and prognosis as well. In addition to the types of data and samples that Daniel mentioned, we will also be storing samples from all of the dogs in a biobank at Cornell. And so I think this is important because there's a lot of interest in the field right now in signatures and biomarkers and aging clocks. And people are thinking about epigenetics and metabolome, things like that. But in the future, certainly there will be additional types of molecular measures that people are interested in probing in the context of aging and disease. Our expectation is that the samples that are collected and stored in the biobank will be useful to the field for exploring those other types of molecular markers that may be particularly predictive for overall aging or certain age-related disease processes. The other point that I want to mention as well is that the Dog Aging Project from its inception has been envisioned as an open science project. And so all of the data that we collect is being made available on an annual basis to the scientific community. And so we are working with the Broad Institute, the Terra Platform, to make all of the data available so that it's not just what the members of the Dog Aging Project can do, but it's ideas that the rest of the scientific community may have for how to explore the data that we collect and use it both to move the aging field forward, but certainly for other areas of veterinary medicine, epidemiology, systems biology. It's our hope that the data will be broadly valuable to the scientific community. I wasn't aware of the biobanking aspect of it. I think that's really exciting. As you well may know, BioAge, where I work, we rely heavily on banked human samples to reconstruct life histories going back decades from bank samples. When those investigators started banking those samples decades ago, they couldn't even envision the technologies that we're using today. So one might imagine that uh, even if one were to bring the most current methods to bear on these dog samples that are being banked, you know, in a decade from now, it'll probably be a completely different landscape in terms of technology. So that's extremely exciting. The other thing about dogs is that a decade from now, when new technologies may be available, that's about the equivalent of 70 years of biological aging in people, right? So it's almost as if in a human longitudinal study, you had biobanked samples for seven decades. We can get that sort of biological age resolution in a single decade of dogs. You know, we were always taught growing up that one human year is seven dog years, but I know that that simplistic formulation has been revisited. What's the current thinking about the relationship between human aging and dog aging in terms of time? So one thing that I think is really important to keep in mind that is the simplest answer to that question is that when you're trying to figure out that equivalency, you have to ask yourself what dog you're talking about. Because a Great Dane would be considered geriatric at seven years, whereas a Chihuahua might be considered geriatric at 12 or 14 and could well live 18 or 19 years, whereas a Great Dane won't likely make it past a decade. The average dog might live 11 or 12 years, but there's a lot of variation. So the average dog year 
might be about 10 years of human life, but it really varies from dog to dog. So I, I agree with what Daniel said, that different dogs, clearly based on body size, to some extent, age at different rates. I think it's complicated to ask, you know, how many dog years does one human year equal? Because first of all, the field as a whole hasn't really settled on a, a consensus definition of biological aging. So that complicates it from the start. I think if you use the epigenetic clock model, what appears to be the case is that it is about seven dog years for each human year, but it's not a linear relationship. And maybe the way to think about it is that early in a dog's life, they are aging even more rapidly compared to humans. Maybe it's 14 dog years for each human year. Then once they get into middle age, that slows down so that it's less than seven years, maybe three dog years for each human year. So it's a nonlinear relationship. But I still think that that sort of old rule of thumb, seven to one, is pretty good. And it really captures the essence of the idea that biological aging is faster in dogs than it is in people. The epigenetic work that's come out recently is really interesting. But of course, we also have to ask ourselves to what extent in dogs, the epigenetic variation that we're seeing that appears nonlinear is reflective of underlying pathophysiological processes. And that's something that we don't know yet, but the Dog Aging Project will eventually be able to tell us what the relationship is between the epigenetic age clock and actual aging of pathophysiological processes. So when you say that Great Danes live on average, you know, seven years or seven or eight years and Chihuahuas may live 12 or 13, does that mean that they have different maximum lifespans or is that equivalent to saying that their rate of aging is different? So a Chihuahua can easily make it to 15, 16 or older. And there are couple of things that are going on. So the maximum lifespan of a Chihuahua really is longer than a Great Dane. So if you take 100 Chihuahuas and 100 Great Danes, the Chihuahua that lives the longest is going to just blow past the Great Dane that lives the longest. And let me stress that that doesn't mean that everybody should run out and get a Chihuahua instead of a Great Dane. All of these dogs are awesome, and there are lots of reasons to choose a particular dog. But there's some suggestion from our early analysis that the larger breed dogs are actually aging faster, that the rate at which things decline is really faster. But the data are pretty limited. And one of the exciting things about the Dog Aging Project is that it will help us to see whether the rate at which different breeds fall apart really is different. And then the last thing that I'll mention and I'm sure that Matt will have more to add to this as well, is that what different breeds die of is really different. So for example, these very large breed dogs are quite likely to get what in humans is very rare, but in large dogs is common, and that's a bone cancer called osteosarcoma. You see it in children sometimes, but rarely, in large breed dogs very frequently. You would never see osteosarcoma in a very small dog like a toy poodle or something. So there are really big differences and that lots and lots of dogs are mixed breed dogs or mutts. And one of the things that we're really excited about is that we don't yet know how to predict what mixed breed dogs are going to die of in the same way that we could predict that a Doberman might get cardiomyopathy, a heart problem, for example. There's just a lot to learn about how quickly different breeds age and what they age and die from. Well, you know, there is the notion of hybrid vigor, right? So one might think that mixed breed dogs would be more resistant to disease. They do live longer, about a year longer on average. I had heard that one of the problems in Great Danes is that they have such long limbs and large bodies that their hearts sort of give out because they have to pump the blood over such long distances. Is that, a, that an urban legend or have you ever heard that one before? I think we probably need veterinary expertise for that one, Bob. But Okay, okay. Can I riff on what Daniel said for a second? Because I think this idea of do big dogs age faster than small dogs helps to illustrate, you know, what I see as a real challenge in the field right now. Again, which is we don't have a great consensus definition for what we mean when we say, are they aging faster? So I think if you look at 
mortality? You could argue that they do. If you look at morbidity or sort of overall disease incidence, I think you could argue that big dogs age faster than small dogs. But if you really dig into, you know, what do we mean at the molecular level of by aging or at the tissue level, that's where I think it's pretty unclear. And, and Daniel's right that I think that the data that we collect will help to flesh out this question. And my guess is it's going to be complicated that for lots of tissues, lots of age-related diseases, indeed, big dogs will show similar progression as smaller dogs. It'll just happen more quickly. In other words, they're more likely to get cancer or kidney disease, you know, at a given chronological age. But for other tissues, that might not be the case. And cognitive function is one that has emerged as a growing interest within the Dog Aging Project. And that's an area where dogs definitely show cognitive decline with age. They develop dementia just like people do. But if you compare big dogs to little dogs, and this is very early data, but the early data really suggests that, that big dogs don't show when you match chronologically, don't show any greater incidence of dementia, suggesting that for brain aging, maybe big dogs don't age faster than small dogs. So I think this is a really complicated and interesting question, but I also just want to caution because I do it too. Many of us in the field are imprecise when we talk about aging rates, and it's not always clear what we mean. And so I think it's important to try to be clear, at least as much as we can, about what we're referring to when we talk about rates of aging. And it's quite possible that even within an animal, certain organs are aging at different rates than other organs. So it could be that the brain is a privileged organ in that regard. So you're taking all breeds, purebred and mixed. I know that you're particularly interested in enrolling some of the rare breeds that may be underrepresented in your cohort. How do you correct for breed or genetic factors when you're sorting through this massive data? So the good news is that for 10,000 of these dogs, we will have whole genome sequences. And for the purebred dogs, that allows us to determine what breed they are with certainty. And even with the mixed breed dogs, we can use those data to figure out what the dog ancestry is. You know, if it had German Shepherd Dog and a Golden Retriever and a Chow Chow and a Rottweiler, we can pick all of that up and begin to ask how different breeds contribute to what happens as dogs age. So we can actually control for that with the genetic data. And then the other thing is, at least for the purebred dogs, we know a lot about their genetics just from what the owner tells us. The owner tells us that their dog is a Weimaraner that tells us a lot about the underlying genetics without having to sequence its genome. And it might tell you a little bit about the owner as well. <laughs> that too. <laughs> you know, they say owners look like their dogs, right? Right. In terms of environment, I know that you had mentioned that you're interested in getting dogs from rural and urban and suburban environments. And I assume in your questionnaires, you ask about, you know, what the immediate environment is like. How much of an impact do you think living in a rural setting versus a urban setting would impact the aging of a dog? Or is it too early to tell? I'll give you an example from a paper that two graduate students are writing right now, working with me at the University of Washington. They're really interested in how environment impacts physical activity. And so they're looking at physical activity, how intense the dog's activity is, as reported by the owner and how much time it spends outside every day being active. And at least based on owner reports, it's clear that intensity and duration of activity decline with age. Any of your listeners who have a geriatric dog will experience the slowing down that happens as the dog ages. But the really striking thing is that at any age, and maybe not surprisingly, Rural dogs spend much more time outside than urban and suburban dogs. So this sets up this exciting question that we'll be able to ask as we follow dogs for two, three, four, five years. Is it the case that this greater amount of time spent active outside in the rural dogs affects their lifespan, their frailty, any of the diseases that they might get? So it's an open question, but one that I think we're going to be able to answer. Well, getting back to this sort of relationship between human and dog environments, 
that begs the question of whether there are impacts on human lifespan in rural versus urban environments. But that's probably beyond the scope of this, this uh, interview. Okay, the last question I have on this sort of enrollment is, I'm wondering what sort of um, enthusiasm or relationships that you develop with the vets and how do they react to it being part of the dog aging project? Like the veterinary professionals, you know, how do they fit in and what's their level of enthusiasm? I'll mention a couple of things. We have veterinary experts on our team who are academic veterinarians, internal medicine specialists, epidemiologists, neurologists, and so on. But the veterinarians are very excited to learn about normative aging in dogs because it hasn't been studied very much. And I'll tell you one story, and then maybe Matt can talk about the veterinarians he's working with. But last week, we shipped a kit to an owner to take to their veterinarian. And these kits are filled with, as I mentioned earlier, blood samples, hair, fecal samples, urine, and then they need to be delivered via FedEx to our diagnostic lab. This was a rural veterinarian and there wasn't a FedEx office or drop-off point in that community. So the veterinarian, not the owner, but the veterinarian after work, drove 40 minutes to the next town over where there was a a FedEx drop-off so that they could deliver the kit. That's the kind of enthusiasm that we see from participating veterinarians. This might be a good time to um, talk about interventions. I know that you had mentioned that you have this group of about 10,000, the foundation group that uh, is mainly questionnaires, and you have the precision group where you're doing comprehensive sampling and sending those back to the lab for uh, deeper analysis. But then there's this thing called triad, which is the test of rapamycin in aging dogs. And Matt, I believe you were the lead and uh, inspiration for this. So could you just describe triad? If you could give us a little bit of an overview on what the drug is and why you think it might be useful to test it in dog aging. The Dog Aging Project PAC, which in order to be a member of the PAC, owners complete the what we call the health and life experiences survey, which gives us a large amount of data on the dog's health history and its environment. And at that time, they're also asked to upload electronic veterinary medical records. And so there are about 32,000, more than 32,000 dogs now enrolled in the pack. Of those, 10,000 are selected for the foundation cohort. And there we get full genome sequencing. And then of those, about a thousand are selected for the precision cohort. Or I guess I just should say, in addition to the 10,000 in foundation, there's the precision cohort, which is the systems biology cohort where, where we collect samples and, and get, you know, molecular data on those dogs. So triad fits within the overall dog aging project pack. So triad is the test of rapamycin in aging dogs. That's the only clinical trial that the dog aging project is carrying out right now. And the goal of that trial is really to test whether or not the drug rapamycin can slow aging and increase healthy lifespan in pet dogs. The rationale for testing rapamycin in dogs is really based on a very large body of literature, primarily in model organisms in the laboratory, invertebrate organisms, yeast and nematodes and fruit flies, and also in mice. So I'll just describe briefly the data in mice because I think that's most compelling when you think about studying aging in dogs or in people. So in mice, what we know about rapamycin is that if you start treating mice with this drug in middle age, you can increase lifespan by between 10 and 25%, depending on the dose and duration. But probably more importantly, it really seems as if rapamycin treatment is modulating the overall biological aging process. And in this case, I'm going to use a sort of functional definition of aging. So what I mean is that rapamycin treatment either delays the decline in organ and tissue function across pretty much the whole body, or in many cases now, it seems clear that rapamycin treatment started in middle age can actually reverse functional declines of aging. And that's true certainly in brain and the oral cavity and the immune system and the kidney and the reproductive tissues that you can actually reverse 
some functional measures of aging. So really seems as if rapamycin is a good bet for an intervention that could have similar effects in dogs and in people. And there's a little bit of data in humans that rapamycin derivatives can reverse functional declines in the immune system during aging and also in the skin. So we set out to design a clinical trial to really try to answer this question in pet dogs. So TRIAD is a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial of rapamycin. Um, We are enrolling middle-aged dogs, so the dogs have to be at least seven years old. They have to be between 40 and 100 pounds at the time of enrollment. This is, again, because big dogs age faster than small dogs, at least by some measures of aging. And they have to be healthy. So I think that's what really differentiates TRIAD from other clinical trials that people are talking about in the field of aging. This is really a true clinical trial of healthy aging. The dogs have to be of normal health status for their age at the time of enrollment. And the goal is to identify whether or not rapamycin can significantly increase lifespan. So lifespan is the primary endpoint. We are statistically powered to detect a 14% increase in lifespan over a period of three years. And then we're also looking at at a variety of secondary endpoints, which include pretty much every functional aspect of aging that you might imagine. So cardiac function is one that we're really looking closely at, but we're also tracking kidney function and activity and cancer incidents and other age-related disease incidents to really try to get a good understanding of whether rapamycin is broadly affecting the aging process in dogs. That's exciting. So rapamycin is FDA approved for use in humans, just to make that clear. So we know that it's a relatively safe drug insofar as it's used in humans. That's a very exciting study. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So rapamycin has been FDA approved for organ transplant patients for a couple of decades now. So one thing to consider is it's off patent, so it's a generic. And you're absolutely right. We have a very good understanding of dosing, at least as it pertains to preventing organ transplant rejection. The side effect question is an important one. So obviously, because we're studying this drug in people's pets, safety has to be the most important consideration. It's very much like a pediatric clinical trial, as if you were doing this in in people's children. So we, at every step, have been very um, aware that we really need to make sure that this can be done safely. And so there's some concern about rapamycin in the clinical world because at the doses used in organ transplant patients, there are side effects from rapamycin. They're not life-threatening, but there are a long list of side effects. And what we have learned, both from our studies and from other studies that have been performed in the field, is that the lower doses of rapamycin that we believe are going to be consistent with effects on biological aging but there really are very few side effects associated with treatment of rapamycin at that dose. So I just think it's really important to explicitly state for rapamycin, just like for any other drug, dose and duration are extremely important when it comes to potential side effects as well as potential efficacy. And at least in the case of rapamycin, there is, I think, a pretty good body of evidence that the side effects are really very minimal at the doses that we're talking about. That's a great point. Nonetheless, are going to be carefully tracking side effects through the entire clinical trial in order to really document what the risks might be at the levels of rapamycin that we're talking about. Let's just say that when all is said and done, you show a significant increase in lifespan in the dogs that are treated with rapamycin. The obvious thing to do there then is to translate that to humans and use that as a bridge to a human trial. What do you think the challenges are there? The first thing I would say is, well, I agree with what you just said, that one obvious thing to do is to translate that to a human clinical trial. Another obvious thing to do is to translate that to best practice in companion dogs. So I just say that because I really want to make the point that I think everybody on the Dog Aging Project team agrees that this isn't only about what we'll learn about human aging. There's intrinsic value in being able to increase the lifespan and health span of our pets. There's value to the pets and there's value to the owners. So I think that one big potential outcome from our work in the Dog Aging Project is to actually improve the health and lifespan of the dog. That's one thing that I believe would result from a successful triad clinical trial. The other point before we talk about translating to humans that I want to make is that I also think for the broader field, a successful triad clinical trial will have a huge impact on the way that the field of aging research or of geroscience 
is perceived by the general public. I think it's clear that we still have a challenge making the general public aware of the reality of where geroscience is today. The vast majority of the general public doesn't know of the progress that's been made and still has sort of a negative feeling about the field. I think if we're successful at showing that it is possible to increase health span in people's pets, that will really be a watershed moment in the field in the way that we are perceived by the general public. And I don't think we should underestimate the potential impact of that. Um, specifically, you know, what would this mean about moving rapamycin into clinical trials for healthy aging in people? I mean, we've already seen there have been a couple of clinical trials for a rapamycin derivative for immune function in the elderly. So I think this will certainly add incentive to doing that for other indications. But I also feel like that's moving forward in parallel. So rapamycin, in addition to other interventions, are already being tested in clinical trials for specific age-related endpoints. I think it will always be a challenge to envision designing a clinical trial in humans that will directly assess aging, at least in the context of lifespan. It's just not reasonable to think about doing a two or three decade human clinical trial for lifespan. So this is getting now into a completely different topic, but I think that there are lots of smart people thinking about ways that we can design clinical trials in humans, looking at short-term functional endpoints of aging, developing really rigorous biomarkers of aging that then maybe could be taken to FDA as surrogate endpoints. And that's kind of how I view the evolution of rapamycin and rapamycin derivatives in human clinical trials is paralleling along with that. That was a great point. I was being a little bit too human-centric there, and I, I kind of leapfrogged past the uh, whole notion that learning rapamycin could increase or enhance health and increase lifespan in dogs was intrinsically of value. So thank you for pointing that out. I wanted to ask about the big data aspect of the Dog Aging Project. The project seems as though it's going to be generating extraordinary large volumes of data, and there must be a team of computational biologists and IT people, and um, there must have to be a lot of coordination between computer scientists and uh, biologists and veterinarians. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. And we've learned a lot about the challenges to collecting massive amounts of data and then doing what we call curating the data, making sure that all the different types of data that we collect about each dog, from the kind of neighborhood it lives in, to its age, to its gene sequence, to the number of microbes in its poop, can all be put together and analyzed. It's a huge challenge. It's probably the largest part of our budget. And then once all those data are in place, and for us that place is ultimately the Google Cloud, but it's housed at the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard on their Terra platform. And then the next step in the process is to begin analyzing all those data. And there are countless questions that people can ask. Some of them are quite simple, like the one I mentioned earlier, simply asking whether the number of hours that a dog spends outside every day depends on whether it lives in a city or a suburb or a rural area. But there are also much more complex questions that people can ask by bringing huge amounts of the data together and, for example, asking whether all of those data taken together could predict some event in the future life of that dog, like whether it's going to get cancer or diabetes. And we actually have just put in an additional proposal to the National Institute on Aging to try and get some additional funding to support the kind of analysis that people are doing, artificial intelligence and machine learning, to try and extract that information. The challenge is that in these massive data sets, there's a huge amount of noise, and it takes a lot of computational power to pull out the signals from all that noise. But if you can do that, you can learn a huge amount. There's lots of interest in the aging field to do this, and the National Institute on Aging is encouraging us to try and, and do just that kind of thing. A lot of human trials that where they want to use motion as a feature of what they're measuring are using these 
so-called wearable devices or Fitbits or whatever. Is there a wearable device component to your project? There are lots of wearable devices on the market for dogs, and they're very much like the devices that humans wear. Typically, though, they go on the collar of the dog, and we will be putting those devices on the precision dogs and the triad dogs to measure their activity, how it changes with age. I think there's particular interest in that for the triad study that Matt might want to comment on. Daniel's right. There is definitely particular interest. And one of the signals that we got from the very first short-term clinical trial that we did with rapamycin, which was really just a safety trial, where we also looked at cardiac function, these were dogs that were treated for 10 weeks with rapamycin, middle-aged dogs. And on the owner-reported questionnaires where we were tracking side effects, one of the questions we had was sort of an open-ended question. Have you noticed any changes in your dog's behavior that you would consider positive or negative? And several of the owners whose dogs were receiving rapamycin, they didn't know this. It was double-blind, placebo-controlled. Several of those owners said that their dogs were more active. So that is a very preliminary observation, but we're very interested now to try to obtain quantitative data to see whether or not in older dogs, treatment with rapamycin actually does lead to an increase in spontaneous activity. The folks at the Dog Aging Project always talk about how dogs are great models, partly because they share our environment, they live with us in our environment, and that includes being exposed to the same risk factors that might accelerate aging or age-related disease that we struggle with. And because dogs are so much shorter-lived than humans, they offer up the opportunity to identify risk factors much more quickly. So if there's a risk factor in our environment, for example, the particulate matter in the air that comes from diesel exhaust. If we live in a neighborhood that has a very high level of diesel exhaust, it might take decades to affect our own health, whereas it might take just a few years to show up as a, a health problem for dogs. So in that way, dogs can be sort of a canary in the coal mine pointing to environmental risk factors that we don't yet know are risky for us because they take decades to impact us. And so we're quite excited about the dog as a sentinel for human aging risk factors. The canary in the coal mine, except in this case, it's the canine in the house. That's right. Okay. <laughs> That's a very interesting point. Thank you for bringing that up. Before we kind of wrap up into more general things, I wanted to ask both of you, you know, scientists gravitate towards any number of things, whether it be astronomy or oceanography or biology, but having worked in the aging field I, or working in the aging field, I always like to ask people what particular aspects of the field drew them to these particular questions. And I was wondering if you might give a brief thumbnail sketch of how you got here and why you became interested in aging. I was in graduate school in the late 1980s and studying evolutionary biology. And I was focused mostly on looking at differences between mammal species from mice to deer to warthogs and elephants and everything in between, and all the ways in which they're different in terms of the timing of their life cycle, gestation length and time to reach sexual maturity and how long they lived. And the thing that I kept on coming back to was the variation in how long they lived. So that was 30 years ago. The first paper on aging that I published was about differences in lifespan in mammals. And what I discovered is that aging is like a great connector in science. So, so much of our scientific progress happens because people are able to really focus on a problem, become experts at it and spend a whole career working on that problem and solving it. For me, what I love about science is finding the questions that are kind of in between those areas of expertise, where maybe people hadn't gone before. And often really creative things happen when you bring two or three experts from different fields together. And aging is just like that. Aging is the thing that connects all of us from our own personal experience. And even if we aren't starting to age, our loved ones who are aging, and it also connects all of these fields 
what I love about the dog aging project is that like aging, it connects all these fields. So the dog aging project team includes geroscientists like Matt and me. It includes epidemiologists, cancer specialists. It even includes bioethicists who are interested in philosophical and moral questions. So aging connects all of these different areas of interest and so does the dog aging project. So that for me is what keeps me excited about aging in my career and also what led me to be excited about helping to launch the dog aging project itself. How about you, Matt? I really owe my career in aging research to Lenny Garanti. Um, This goes back to when I was a first-year graduate student at MIT. I went to graduate school thinking that I would study x-ray crystallography or structural biology or something like that. My background was in mathematics and, and biophysics. And I heard a talk by Lenny during my first semester at MIT where he gave a seminar talking about how his lab was using genetics and molecular biology and biochemistry to study the aging process. And this was in in yeast at the time. To this day, I can remember sitting there and thinking to myself that that is just so cool that you can take those tools and apply them to try to understand a biology as complicated as aging. And at that time, I was still relatively young. So I didn't get into aging because I wanted to, you know, slow my own aging process. It was really just what I think of as the sort of beautiful complexity of aging biology. So I started working in yeast and then as a postdoc expanded into C. elegans. And then when I got my own lab in mice and and now dogs, but really it's always been centered around trying to understand the complexity of aging to ultimately be able to modulate that process. And certainly as my career has progressed, my interests have gradually shifted more and more to, to what I think of as translational geroscience, which is to actually, you know, use what we've learned about the biology of aging to have an impact on health and longevity in people and, and of course, in dogs. And, you know, when Daniel and Katie and I were first starting to formulate the Dog Aging Project, you know, it was really, for me, a perfect marriage of two things that I'm passionate about, the biology of aging and dogs. I've always had dogs growing up. Dogs have always been an important part of my life. So it was really just sort of the perfect opportunity to combine those two things in a way that I think, you know, has the potential to really have a large impact on the field of aging research and on society as a whole. And so I continue to be amazed by the new things that people are learning about the biology of aging. And I'm really, really excited about where the field's at and where it's heading. Well, it's clearly a a very interesting and fast-moving field with a lot of not only interesting scientific questions, but a great deal of current societal impact. I just wanted to share this anecdote with uh, you and the listeners. When I was uh, running an academic lab and students would come to me and ask to work with me, I'd always ask them, why are you interested in aging research? A shocking number of them would say, I've been interested in understanding aging ever since I was a child. And I'd ask them why in two instances, and these were actually both some of the most motivated students that I had, they said, when I was a when I was a child, my dog died. And I asked my parents how old the dog was. And they would say something like, oh, you know, the dog died of old age. And because it was 13. And then the child would say, am I going to die when I'm 13? And the parent would say, no, 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 you're a human. You're, you're going to live to be 80 or 90. And that just planted the seed in their minds that there was some unexplained phenomena that they needed to get to the bottom of. So in a sense, they were doing their own mini versions of pondering the questions that we've been discussing today. So, so I wanted to ask you, there does seem to be a number of startups down here in the Bay Area And we've even interviewed a few of the founding CEOs of biotech companies that are focused on dogs as their sort of organizing principle. I'm just wondering if you think that in the biotech field, if dogs are going to become increasingly important as a model system for understanding human health, there does seem to be a trend. And I was wondering if you guys were aware of that or what you might think about it? So yeah, absolutely. There are several companies now that are 
trying to develop therapies to treat aging or age-related indications with companion animals, at least as sort of the first path to the market. And I mean, personally, I think that's fantastic. Certainly, we view the Dog Aging Project as something that hopefully other people in the field will build off of. And uh, I think that concept has definitely permeated the field and that we're seeing now the first companies recognize that dogs and potentially cats as well are not only good models for understanding aging, but that there's actually a market there and that, that I think that will accelerate discovery in the aging field. So I think it's a good thing. I also, though, do want to say that, you know, again, I think it's really important whenever you're talking about particularly clinical testing of interventions in companion animals, that safety has to be first, right? I already alluded to this idea that in many ways, it's like a pediatric clinical trial. So I would just want to encourage all of the companies that are considering moving forward in the companion animal space to keep that in mind and make sure that whatever you are planning to bring to the market, that you do it in the context of safety, because the last thing that any of us want to do is, is harm somebody's pet. And I'm sure that they are, but I think it's important to just explicitly recognize that you really have to be aware of the fact that people love their dogs. Yeah, I agree with everything that Matt said. I think I mean, people in startups are recognizing not only that dogs are a good model for learning about humans, but also that because people love dogs, there are, at least before the COVID pandemic, there were 90 million dogs in this country. I'm guessing that's a good deal higher now because of all the dogs that were adopted during the pandemic. So there's a good commercial reason to push that. And I would just reflect on Matt's comment about safety coming first. So any human clinical trial that is funded through the National Institutes of Health has to include a data and safety monitoring board or DSMB. And even though we're not a human clinical trial, we have a DSMB because we want to have the highest bar of safety and oversight. We also have an independent animal welfare advisory board that includes both veterinarians and members of the public. And then we have two bioethicists, one who's on our team and one who's independent, because it's just really important to recognize that everything you do has to be done to the highest ethical standard. As we wrap up the discussion, I give both of you an opportunity to um, speculate on the future. What do you feel are the most promising or compelling questions or breakthroughs that are likely to occur or that you hope to occur in aging research or geroscience in, in the near term? For me, one of the big motivations of the Dog Aging Project is trying to understand how aging happens and the mechanisms of aging in the real world, by which I mean in a population where everybody is genetically different or unique, like humans and like dogs. And that's a real challenge. And as we start thinking about translational geroscience that Matt was talking about and bringing discoveries from the lab to the real world, we need to keep in mind that most of the discoveries in the lab are made in very controlled settings so that we can really understand what's going on. We don't want a lot of noise. And that includes controlling the genotype or the genetics. So typically when we study a mouse or a fly or a worm, it's a single genotype. And the reality is that we're all so genetically different. And so I'm really excited about the Dog Aging Project. And I also think an important question for the coming decade will be not only whether we can translate our discoveries from the lab into the real world, the natural world, but also what are the challenges when everybody is different? And some people might respond positively, but some people might even respond negatively. Can we make discoveries to predict who would respond positively and who negatively and to act appropriately? Maybe different doses are appropriate for different people. That's a for me, a big challenge for the coming years and a challenge that I hope the Dog Aging Project will address. There are a couple of challenges that I'd like to speak to that are specific to the Dog Aging Project, where I think there's just a great opportunity, not just for geroscience, but including geroscience. One is that historically, it's been really hard to recruit 
certain populations to research and clinical trials, especially underserved communities, people living in communities of low socioeconomic status, poorer communities, or communities of color. And everybody, every kind of person has a dog. And we're excited to try and recruit these diverse populations to the Dog Aging Project, and maybe even to use that as a model for getting all communities excited about participating in this term that we like to use of community science. And then similarly, in the coming years, we're really excited about using the Dog Aging Project data, which Matt mentioned is open data, so people outside of our team can access it, using those data for course-based research experiences where students at different levels, high school, community college, especially in communities that might not have access to cutting-edge research labs, can do research online, original research, even write papers with our data. And and so we're really excited about not only the, the future of geroscience in terms of fundamental discoveries, but also the future of exciting all communities out there, not just researchers, but the non-scientific community about the excitement of geroscience. I would point to two areas where I think we're probably going to see major advance in the field overall in the next decade. So I think the first is the area of biomarkers, or as Daniel was alluding to, sort of precision geroscience. So the idea that we will, as a field, develop validated, accepted biomarkers or signatures that can then be used to predict not only individual aging trajectories, but hopefully intervention efficacy. Now, that's not the same as demonstrating intervention efficacy. I think we're still going to need clinical trials to show that the interventions are actually having the effects that we predict that they're going to have. But from a discovery perspective, I think having these sort of validated biomarkers will be extremely useful for identifying candidate interventions to move into clinical trials. So that's one area. I think the other area is, in fact, clinical trials. And I fully expect that within the next decade, we will see the first geroscience intervention approved to treat an age-related indication. And I think that you know there are lots of people in the field who are thinking about clinical trials in humans for aging. In my own head, I have a set of, of probably eight to 10 indications that I think are amenable to clinical trials in humans to test geroscience interventions. And I expect that that we will, in fact, see at least one, if not multiple, FDA approvals. I hope that that will be the case. And so I think those are two areas, certainly, where we'll continue to see rapid progress. I do also want to, though, caution a little bit, because I think there's a lot of unbridled enthusiasm in the field right now. And I worry a little bit when people are talking about curing aging or stopping aging or defeating aging. That gives a really sort of misleading perspective on where the field is. You know, this is an unpopular thing to say in some circles, but we should recognize that the largest effect on lifespan in a mammal happened in the 1980s. And that was a caloric restriction experiment that Weindrick and Walford did. So while I think that the field has huge potential to enhance health span and potentially longevity in people, I think we want to also set realistic expectations and try to use language that is consistent with where the field's at today. Well, thank you for those comments. Thank you very much, Daniel Promislow and Matt Caberling, for giving us so much of your time and thoughts. This is clearly a very interesting project that has scientific and societal implications, as uh, Daniel pointed out. It's really very satisfying to know that you were able to implement this project at such a scale. I fully expect that it's going to yield just some amazing insights into biology in general, the human and um, veterinary health. So thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. And um, with that, uh, we'll sign off. Thanks, Bob. This was fun. Thanks, Bob. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com 
or on Twitter at BioAge Podcast. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.